Welcome, everyone, to the latest, greatest episode of The Network Age. I am Bitchell Ritson here with my handsome, intelligent co-host, Habsol Rigner. Habsol, how are you, how are you doing today? Um, great, man. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so we're here, just the, just the two of us, uh, the third head of this monster. Nirun Mardux will not be joining us, which means that, boy, we're just going to be so funny and, and smart for the duration of this episode, I'm sure. Well, I mean, yeah, at least one of us. <laughs> right, right. And uh, well, I know you you didn't come for our banter. You came because we have a really excellent guest today, Logan Allen of Zorp, uh, which is a an urban adjacent company building a NOC ZK EVM and also just one of the smartest, most interesting dudes I've ever had the pleasure of talking to. Yeah, I'm particularly excited to talk to him about uh, sort of his... I, I know that he has a interesting philosophical take on the the way that the computing, the tools that we make sort of shape us and how the tools that we have left over from the 20th century have negatively affected, you know, the human species. So um, that's part of this conversation is I'm particularly interested to talk to him about. Yeah, he has a really interesting view of the sort of moral imperative for the type of work that Urbit and by extension Zorp is doing. And that will serve as a seg into everything zero knowledge and Zorp and Urbit. And we'll get into some nitty gritty technical discussion in the back half of the episode for for those of you freaks who are interested in that kind of stuff. So we're really looking forward to it. We're going to have Logan here in one second after the jump. Welcome back to the Network Age, and I am here with our guest Logan Allen, known on Urba as Takrite Sokripe or Takrite Sokrip, depending on how you feel about the canonical pronunciations. And uh, Logan, how you doing? Thanks for for joining us today. Doing well. It's a beautiful day out here in Texas. Yeah, yeah. We we saw earlier it looked blue. It's very it's it's gray here in Montana, so I'm I'm feeling a little jealous, but I. As much as all our guests have come here to learn about the weather in our various locations, I think they might be even more interested in in the work you're doing. So, Logan, you've you've been all over the Urbit verse. You have worked for Slan and, and Terrell and Ukbar and are now working on Zorp, bringing zero knowledge technology to the Urbit space. And we're going to dive into all of that, but we want to know it. How did you get into Urbit land at all? Everyone seems to have their own strange journey there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's a fairly good question. So really, in 2017, I got very, very interested in Bitcoin as a parallel money. And what I saw was that Bitcoin really wasn't the end-all be-all in any way, and that money really wasn't the end-all be-all, but rather that it was a call for more types of parallel infrastructure to be built. So if you have a parallel money, something that's totally decentralized, something that resets an incentive layer, suddenly there's a call for parallel means of organization, for parallel means of communication, for parallel means of work, for parallel infrastructures generally, parallel communities and parallel economies to be built. But all of that requires and comes back to infrastructure. And so I looked at various projects that were talking about themselves in some of these terms. So that was everything from Blockstack to Holochain to Urbit. And I saw that other than a few people between these projects, everyone else was just ignoring it and treating it as some like flash in the pan. Ah, yeah, now we just have new money. Okay, well, what does that mean? What can you do with that? Not much by itself, turns out. <laughs> and so I really vibed with the Urbit guys the most because it really seemed to me like they were the ones taking the problem, the problem of building a new set of parallel infrastructure the most seriously. Because parallel infrastructure requires a solid foundation for the long term. And they seemed to be the only ones that were taking the problem of how is the foundation of these things going to be built? seriously in the same way that say satoshi took the problem of how do we build out the incentives of a new monetary layer and so long story short found myself 
dropping out of college, moving to San Francisco, and then very soon after joining Talon Corporation. And when you talk about all of these different parallel systems, what exactly do you mean by that? Do you mean replacing or running alongside legacy institutions? Are we talking, you know, we're talking more than just money, as you said, more than just banking, but what types of experiences are you trying to enable or think are important in, in developing this type of parallel infrastructure? What we see in modernity is man being eclipsed by the built environment and the built environment, not just shaping man, but consuming him. And insofar as man is shaped by his tools, we see that the creation of tools and the creation of the forces by which we're shaped are in many ways best considered as the base layer of reality, much more so than we would think of even things that people deem fundamental, such as say physics. And so when we look to what is infrastructure, what we're talking about is the things that shape us and who we are, not just in the present, not just even in our own futures, but on a generation by generation level. And this is everything from incentives to kind of a McLuhan-esque medium to, again, just a simple reading of tools as something that we use but are also shaped by. And I think what we see in the 21st century, the burgeoning 21st century, is a situation in which tools have been built haphazardly and worship of tools has been in place for so long, particularly in the West, particularly due to many of the incentives of the 20th century surrounding a need to build better and bigger and more effective weapons, weapons for inflicting mass harm, weapons for inflicting mass control, that the tools have become in charge rather than any particular person. And in regards to this, it's not even worthwhile to look at the things we call institutions and call them institutions. It's, it's much more worthwhile, I think, to refer to them simply as NPCs or automatons being that are channeling demonic forces outside of our control. And I think that this is both accurate in a literal sense and, and also a very useful compression of reality. And so when I say parallel inf institutions or parallel infrastructure, I'm talking about what it means to be human. And I'm talking about what it means to be made in God's image. And I'm saying that specifically reconfiguring man's relationship to his tools is the means by which something recognizably human comes out of the 21st century. Hmm. And, and was one of the things that attracted you to Urbit is an awareness of this disparity between, you know, what you view as what it means to be human and what these institutions are doing or, or taking from us. It seems like part of this is almost a, um, like the, the fish who doesn't know what water is, right, is first you have to recognize what you're swimming in before you can make any changes. And Urbit has really centered as part of its an identity, a desire to create this type of parallel infrastructure in a way that I haven't seen, and you, you seem to agree, you don't see elsewhere as much to take it as seriously and recognize the problem in the first place. I think that there are different groups that take different components of the problem very seriously. And some of them take parts of the problem seriously that Urbit frankly doesn't. But what you see in Urbit is a group of very talented individuals 
that have a shared ideological mission to not impart a particular meaning upon man, but to allow groups the ability to impart their own meaning upon man, which one way of framing this uh, is that the shared goal that all urban uh, ideologues have is to remove the high ground from technology hmm. because they all understand, regardless of their particular views or religious inclination or lack thereof, because there's a variety, they all understand that high ground cannot be held by anything that looks remotely human. And thus, high ground must be eliminated. Can you give us some practical examples of, of uh, design examples, sorry, <laughs> of designs that have uh, <laughs> gone into Urbit uh, that sort of exemplify your, your thinking about how they, they solve these problems? So, of course, the, the classic Urbit answer as well, it starts with knock. And it really does. So it's, it's an apt answer. And the answer is particularly here, a minimization of complexity. And you can think of a minimization of complexity in kind of two terms, and they're really both wonderful frames. One is really a minimization of the information contained in such a thing. And the other is a willingness to start from scratch without needing to uh, phrase oneself in terms of some uh, material dialectic. So in other words, a departure from historical baggage on one hand, and in the other, a, an emphasis on just pure information reduction. So the reason that that's important is because, well, we can look at a few things in regards to worldwide demographics, and we can point to an emerging trend, which is fairly obvious, but people try to avoid because it's the elephant in the room and they see no way around it, which is that we are rapidly running out of people who are capable of maintaining 20th century industrial infrastructure. And we are very quickly transitioning as much of industrial infrastructure into computational systems that can, quote unquote, run automatically as possible. And what that means in practice is, again, a further reliance on our tools to shape us and a further removal of individual autonomy and decision-making from the systems and built environment that we live within. So I'm more or less saying demographics is destiny, and what we see is a drastic reduction in the human population that has been engineered over the past 60 or 70 years it's been stunningly effective and will have catastrophic results on our ability to maintain civilization-grade infrastructure worldwide. And so if we want to have computers by the end of the 21st century, we're going to need those computers to be much simpler and much easier to explain to various people because the degree to which computing or industrial infrastructure depends on a variety of specific niches of expertise is unsustainable. Right, this is a very good reason I, I tell herbiters without, um, uh, I'm not being facetious when I say herbiters should be making babies, you know? Precisely, yes. And do, do you feel like there's multiple visions of what a, a simpler sort of computing stack and computing infrastructure looks like. You talk about starting with knock the assembly language, something really, really fundamental. Um, but do you, do you envision a future in which every person needs to have a working knowledge of, of computers, of, programming of how to maintain their server or is this something more like we just we need more mechanics in the world and everybody needs to know a mechanic they trust to be able to maintain this or something totally different 
much more of the latter. I think that we can look at this, I mean, well, I'll start a little bit further back, which is we can we can start by establishing that the unit of humanity, the, the base unit, is very clearly not the individual as postulated by Enlightenment liberalism, but is very clearly the family. And that insofar as the base unit of humanity is the family, that each family and extended family and then community needs to be able to get to a point where it can maintain its own infrastructure to some degree. And my expectation in a broad sense is that we'll see a reduction in civilization writ large and that we'll see a reduction in how would you say quality of life standards but that the communities that manage to better organize themselves and that manage to maintain the minimum kernel of expertise required to maintain resilience will have a much better time so what role do you think that Urbit has in this future where computing and infrastructure is is much more local, whether that's at the level of family, extended family, community? Is Urbit the medium that enables this or is it the those who recognize Urbit and its use are, are able to gain a competitive advantage through their ability to maintain the the computing infrastructure how how does urbit fit into this long term urbit is the first attempt to build computing systems that are simple enough that it's realistic for community level technical support to be able to actually run and maintain automated infrastructure well that's kind of uh I'll play devil's advocate here. Is that not controversial, right? In that when you spend time online and see people who are not familiar with Urbit, you know, try to boot a ship for the first time and they're unable, they look at Hoon and they hemorrhage and go on a Twitter rant about how I, I do 15 coding languages and Hoon is the most complicated thing I've ever seen. How do you square this, um, you know, lip service to simplicity and to, autonomy with an outside perception that Urbit is quite convoluted. So part of this is really a figure of speech, which is a metonym. And specifically, it's kind of a lack of precision in speech in which people refer to Urbit as, as a colloquialism for the entire stack that, that Urbit provides. And it's Interesting. I'll, I'll address it from kind of two stages. So on the one hand, knock-based computing and Urbit as a personal server operating system are two separate things. And I've been using them as a metonym because that's how everyone else colloquially uses it. But in reality, knock-based computing and Urbit as a personal server operating system are two completely disconnected PCs. And we can get into that later. But really, I'm referring to Urbit as knock-based computing when I'm talking about Urbit running civilization grade infrastructure. I'm not talking about Urbit as a peer-to-peer -peer network of, of uh, servers, but kind of beyond that particular point and more direct to your question. People dislike things that are unfamiliar to them. And my claim is not that Hoon particularly with its particular syntax is the answer. And personally, I like Hoon. I understand why someone else wouldn't. And I understand similarly why people bounce off that are used to more conventional languages that fit better into the material dialectic that they're familiar with. In other words, that fit into and extend things that they've seen before. Rust as an extension of C that has particular semantics that in some ways mirror those of C, but in other ways incorporate new conceptions around how the type system should work. And similarly, uh, 
how memory safety can be achieved and things along these lines. Uh, borrows, borrow checking, all of these things. We can look at that and say, ah, well, Rust has a very similar conception of the computer as C, but it implements a layer on top called borrow checking. And that's not exactly right, but it's close enough. And people generally, when they're learning something new, understand these things in terms of things they already know. And because NOC and NOC-based computing is an attempt to start over from a conceptually clean slate, it's totally alien. And so, of course, they dislike it because it's jarring. And that's understandable. But frankly, when you're talking about generation to generation transmission of information, children have to learn every, everything from scratch anyway. And so that type of barrier is not actually a concern. And the question is actually, in the case of generation to generation transmission of information, what can be compressed down to the tiniest kernel that can last? And for you, this is what knock-based computing solves. It's about transmitting the most information in the smallest space in a way that is easiest to reason about, which then has big implications for the individual's ability to maintain infrastructure built with knock. Precisely. And your company, Zorp, is dealing directly with NOC. You're building a NOC uh, ZK virtual machine. Is, is that correct? Is that the right way to say it? Perfect. And could you, well, I, I want to hear about what you're actually doing and why you think this is so important to Urbit. But I think we should back up a little bit and just talk about zero knowledge proving in general. It's obviously a hot button issue in the crypto world, but zero knowledge cryptography has existed for a long time and has a, an interesting history and it can be really difficult to conceptualize. So I, why don't we take a step back and just talk about that in general? What is zero knowledge computing and why do people think it's so important right now? Yeah, absolutely. So zero knowledge proofs, come from a very niche field of cryptography. And you can frame it in different ways because different lines of research led to it. But I think one of the easiest framings for people that are familiar with things like hash functions is to be thinking about these things in terms of probabilistic collision. And we can frame what a zero-knowledge proof is in terms of something called a probabilistically checkable proof, which I may be getting the precise years messed up, but is, is a field of cryptography and of proof theory that has been being researched and studied since around the 80s. So why, why are we suddenly talking about this all the time in, in the 2020s? Well, it's mostly because it wasn't practical to provide meaningful, general, probabilistically checkable proofs of general computation until very recently. And there's been a drastic improvement in both the performance, ease of construction, and a litany of new approaches for achieving these traits that have been blooming over the past few years. But let's take a step back again. So what is, what is a proof? A proof is something that forces you to know that something is true. It is a series of statements that if you believe one of them, say, or the first few axioms, say, and the logic is tight, then you are thereby forced, bludgeoned even, into believing the, the conclusion. And people really focus on the phrase zero knowledge because in many ways, they think they know what the word proof means. But the fun parts of zero-knowledge proofs are really the way in which the word proof is relaxed and made fuzzy and turned into an object that can be uh, manipulated more deftly and less really in regards to the zero-knowledge, which is more about privacy and hiding of the information involved in the proof. Though I will say I think it's a lovely mimetic term 
that has a lot of uh, catchiness in regards to the zero knowledge proof. So I can't blame the language itself too much. Uh, zero and knowledge, you know, very catchy words. So mm -hmm. uh, what we can say is uh, zero knowledge proofs are a way to take any computation. And we can, we can say that in a slightly, maybe just different terms because people, computation is a very vague thing, but we can take any function and then an input to that function and map it to the output that that function would give. In other words, we have an input, we have a function, and we have an output of putting the input into the function. And what we can do is we can do time compression on it. We can build an artifact, a piece of data that allows you to say, ah, this function definitely maps that input to that output within some probability of error. But one can arbitrarily increase the probability of correctness to a point such that in all general terms, one is more or less saying this is definitely the case. Mm -hmm. And so there are a few things going on with zero knowledge as is, as is discussed. I, as you mentioned, a lot of this originated out of um, how you can communicate information uh, while maintaining some degree of privacy or, or secrecy. The first application of zero knowledge in crypto, I believe, was Zcash, which was used for anonymity in, mm -hmm. in transactions. And I think that the one of the earliest and most famous zero knowledge examples is I think it's called Alibaba's cave, right? Which is mm -hmm. how can someone demonstrate that they know the, the secret password to a door in a cave without revealing the password or mm -hmm. without showing someone how they opened the door, right? How can we be certain, make someone certain about knowledge without them actually witnessing the act that verifies it? Mm -hmm. Um, and now, as you indicated, zero knowledge seems to be gaining more momentum in the, the blockchain world as something that actually has to do with the amount of information that you can verify. And, and um, you know, it, it's being talked about in, in scalability, I think, is its largest uh, applications right now in the way that it, information can be, I don't know, for lack of a better word, compressed and expanded and then have be checked easily, right? That there's someone who can check a very complicated math problem very quickly. Yes. So we can, we can kind of, uh, we can kind of compress what we're talking about a little bit even and say zero knowledge proofs give you a way to do something similar to what you do with a zip file on your desktop. Mm. So with a zip file on your desktop, you can take some folder and you can make it take uh, less space on your desktop. Zero knowledge proofs let you do a computation once and then lets anyone compress the amount of time it takes to check that the result of the computation is right. So it's an incredible capability that can be extended to any area of computing. One thing that's really, really compelling right now in regards to the crypto use case is that layer twos are a very, very strong customer that has very strong product market fit for this type of time compression, because particularly the layer two business model is really a very simple business model to conceptualize, which is just you buy layer one block space, you use compression to be able to host a lot of layer two block space, and then you sell the layer two block space for a large arbitrage over the cost of the layer one. So in other words, buy layer one, sell L2, and make all the money that is the difference. Buy low, sell high. Simplest business model there is. Yeah, I wish I wish I was better at that business model. I I'm a I'm a sell low type of guy, uh, for <laughs> for for better or worse. Um so we have a little bit of a better understanding now of, of how zero knowledge works and why it's important to the, the blockchain and crypto space in general. But what made you feel that you needed to start building a ZK virtual machine 
for knock and and what are the difficulties you're running into and and, and the implications of success sure so I decided to build Zorp, a company building a NOC ZKVM, because ZK is a more general technology than just crypto. And further, in order to be able to give the work its due, in order to be able to appropriately do the R&D, capture the value from that R&D, and then deploy the end products into multiple sectors, the appropriate vehicle was a Delaware C Corp. Is is that a uh, very uh, dry it's a romantic answer? answer. Yeah, yeah the, it, the yeah, driven by passion to create a Delaware uh, C corp. That's yeah. right. That's right. Uh, I, as I'm, as all Delaware corporations are, I'm sure, passion projects for the betterment of like the the arc of the moral universe. It's is true. It's true. Been through <laughs> Delaware. Um, <laughs> I I'd like to know. I'd like to know why. Um, what is. Uh, what in particular about the um, structure of NOC makes it particularly attractive for somebody who wants to build a ZK prover? Yeah, uh, so that's a great question. And so uh, when we first started the company, it was a very uh, it was an it was an intuition, and we and I had been working on uh, just thinking about more so than anything uh, what it would look like to build various types of ZK solutions. Uh, prior, but it really came to a point where I realized that the proper way to do it would be to do it natively to, in other words, treat the problem as not a subset of uh, how do we build this in Cairo or how do we do this in some other solution, but rather uh, there's, there's a potential here that there's a unique advantage that would be, that would be had by approaching the problem from first principles from the very start translating the computation into polynomial terms, et cetera, such that you could then build a native ZKVM. And so in regards to concrete advantages, I'll just kind of gesture at some of the intuitions and then we can kind of get into some of the concrete advantages. But some of the intuitions here are fairly simple. So the first one is, well, all of the main uh, kind of contenders for ZK uh, dominance right now. Well, they all use very, very novel and incredible in many cases and varied approaches to the actual cryptographic commitment schemes. But the actual computational architecture that they're representing looks very similar between them. Very similar. And there are implementation details, of course, as with anything. But we can kind of, in a broad stroke, say things like Cairo, things like Noir, etc., Maiden, Risk Zero. The computational architecture that they're modeling is more or less the same computational architecture that we see physically expressed in modern CPUs. Okay, well, there's advantages to that. Right? It's, it's things that many people are familiar with. But the actual constraints of the design space for building an efficient ZKVM are quite distinct from the problem and constraints of building an efficient computer in physical semiconductors. So when you're dealing with a ZKVM, now there's different, now there's different approaches to achieving ZK. And so I'm not going to be giving you a vague, or I'm not going to be giving you a specific catch-all explanation that applies to all of the different forms of snarks and starts, et cetera. But when you're building a ZKVM, you need to translate your computation into polynomial terms, more or less. And that's a very different problem of being able to get a set of polynomials that elegantly and efficiently express all of the states your computation went through. That's a very, very different problem then the problem that a chip fabricator has of how can I efficiently lay out a circuit on silicon. And so the initial intuition here is that it's actually very, very strange that despite all the research going into these questions of building efficient ZKVMs, that you would see that 
the different companies vary only by their cryptography and not really nearly so much in their computational architecture. Now, there's a very easy explanation for it, which is that the people that, that are designing these things are primarily cryptographers and not primarily people that specialize in computational architecture. But there's, a, there's an interesting opportunity there to then take a language that can be more elegantly expressed in mathematic terms, if one were to know such a language, and then build a extremely efficient ZKVM that can then be mixed and matched to the appropriate cryptographic schemes as the research advances. And so that's what we sought to do with Zorp. And frankly, it's looking really good. That's great. <laughs> that's great that it's looking really good. So what have you faced any challenges in implementing this? Like, has there been anything unexpected in, in the way that putting this together has, I don't know, just it been more difficult than you expect or difficult in unanticipated ways? I mean, you know, there's, there's always the, uh, the classic problem that, that any person building a very complicated system uh, comes upon, which is, of course, you always say to yourself, oh, man, you know, this is going to be totally done in a year or whatever. But, but uh, as you dig into the problem, you find, ah, I can infinitely optimize this thing. Ah, there's an infinite number of features I can add to it. It's just a matter of prioritization and when is good enough to start shipping to customers and all of these things. But frankly, the research has gone uh, astoundingly smoothly. We more or less sat down after our pre-seed in September uh, my, me and uh, at the time, just just uh, Brian, who is a uh, former math professor, uh, studied all this stuff, crazy smart guy, um, super fun to work with too. Um, very uh, humble, unlike uh, many uh, super big brain people, but you know, awesome guy. Sat down to work with him. We just did research for you know four months straight. Then. Uh, expanded the team in January because we had come upon not a precise design, but the proper design space. And we knew we were in the right area. And I can get into this, some of the specifics because uh, we're not, uh, we're not really in stealth anymore. And so basically the timeline was just, we did research for four months, expanded the team. And then we've been pressing the gas ever since uh, nabbing Amsden from, from Talon and more or less getting to a point where we can, have total control over all of our dependencies in regards to being a knock-based company. And, and how big is the, your team now? We have five members and we're bringing on two more contractors in June. So we're about to be seven. Wow. Yeah. Real, real company, real results. Real company, real results. Uh, <laughs> fun, fun stuff there is uh, we filed one provisional patent and we're about to file another one. And we recently started doing customer handoffs um NDAs, etc. So I'm not gonna say any names, but uh we've we've uh we've started handing off to a few different customers in the space that uh have strong interest in in uh working with us and building on top of some of these tools that we've been building. And so it's it's been a really, really amazing experience to go from just intuition to vague remnants of ideas of how to make something really efficient to oh, wow, we can just transform binary trees into vectors, and then we can express those vectors as polynomials, which we can then evaluate on randomness in the interactive oracle proof in this particular way that's additively homomorphic and not only is really, really efficient within a start, but is also even more efficient once you start to think in terms of like, you know, cutting edge cryptographic schemes that are coming out right now and over the past few months, like Hypernova and Protostar that utilize folding schemes. It's kind of awesome when... The work that you're doing isn't just interesting in terms of, say, 2021 cryptography, but is actually even more interesting once you start to think about, hey, wait, we could just throw this into the cutting edge stuff of 2022 and 2023. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Well, you just used about uh, 35 words. I, I don't know. So I'm, go I'm going to jump into, I think, the question that's most relevant for um, someone like me who, who only has a, a vague grasp of some of these concepts like what what can you make with zorp that is new 
that we don't have? Like what on a really concrete level does this enable? Absolutely. So it enables verifiable computation of any computation. And I can get into concrete use cases because I'm sure that's what you were asking. But it's worth thinking about it, not in just, not just in terms of the, the zero knowledge proof meme, but rather in terms of what are computations that you would really, really care about making sure were correct and executed as specified. In other words, what computations do you really care about verifying? And the way I see it is, frankly, critical infrastructure computations. So in other words, of course, finance is critical infrastructure, right? Not having your money stolen out of, your, out of the bank or out of your blockchain is, of course, a critical function of infrastructure. But Zorb sees the ZK opportunity as an opportunity of bringing verifiable computation into critical infrastructure. Because critical infrastructure is the most vulnerable to cyber attacks, the most targeted set of sectors by cyber attacks, and the problem of cyber attacks is increasing at a drastically increasing clip. What we see in 2022, at the least, is that 10.2 billion damages were recorded based on cyber attacks that were done in the United States alone. And this amount has been increasing at a clip of 150% year over year for the past quite a few years. And not only that, but that's prior to LLMs being able to mass deploy these types of exploit capabilities and start to actually automate to a further degree the process by which exploits can be utilized. So in practice, and I will get more concrete, but I wanted to set the stage for that. So in practice, that means that we think that verifiable computation should be deployed to all kinds of control algorithms that maintain critical infrastructure. Everything from making sure that the appropriate pressure and temperature, et cetera, are being maintained in oil and gas pipelines, to ensuring that the money stays in your bank account, to ensuring that the checkout flow that you're going through on you know, some, uh, some retail site is actually working properly, to ensuring that supply chains are able to function properly, and that different parties that don't want to reveal all of their information about their demand to each other or about their, you know, say, order, order sizes to each other can at the very least be able to better predict each other's demand in a way that doesn't require transparent supply chains. And then further that, say, industrial Internet of Things use cases, such as, let's go with a few examples, such as, say, smart meters or such as uh, sensors that are out in the field uh, collecting data or surveillance cameras, can run some pre-agreed upon algorithm and then provide a proof to whatever centralized control system needs to be intaking that data that the computation was executed properly. Um, a really fun, uh, tiny bite-sized use case that we can dig into to any degree you want just because it's easier to kind of approach is a, a verifiable record of software updates. So what if you wanted to have a device that connected to the internet that you could update remotely, scary, right? That you wanted to be able to know that every single update that had ever been performed on the device was not only installing software that had been signed by the appropriate signatures, but also that you could introspect into the history of all of those update, updates in a verifiable manner. So in other words, what if you wanted to know that the proper set of upgrades had occurred, no more, no less, in the correct order, for sure, and that no one had ever managed to be able to, say, install malware on a device? A zero-knowledge proof of a lifecycle function which I'll mention, I, men I mentioned the term because Arvo, the urban operating system, is one such lifecycle function, not the only one, but it is an example of one. It's, it's, an, it's a stateful event loop, right? But a zero knowledge proof of a lifecycle function is an amazing way to solve that problem because you can get a proof, not just that the last update was done properly, but that every state the lifecycle function has ever gone through or every update you've ever sent to the device was correctly applied in the right order and only those updates were applied. 
So there's a lot of fun things, basically. There's a lot of individual use cases that are useful by themselves. And there's a lot of entire sectors that really, really need this technology as the uh, dark forest cybersecurity gets more and more dangerous. Yeah, you, you, you gave me a free song there when you were talking about um, using, using it to, um, uh, for Arbo. I had a, a free song, you know, because I'm, I'm a urban religious. So when you tell me that it can be used to ensure that all of my OTAs are throughout the whole life of my urban potentially can be checked, that's like, a, you know, spiritually moving for me. Yeah, what if you knew what if you knew that it was correct and all your data was safe and that all your computation was good? Yeah. For sure, forever. Yeah. That seems impossible to envision. <laughs> the way some of these, you know, recent OTAs have gone. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. With, without me trying to oversell it, there there is a difference now between correctness and just saying, ah, the specified uh, code ran correctly. In other words, <laughs> it ran the way it was supposed to versus the code did what it was intended to, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> there, there is a distinction there. But uh, but without overselling it, uh, there's various types of capabilities as well that can be uh, provided by the combination as well of formal verification, which is, did the code do what some human intended it to do? Well, and that verification layer. Yeah. We're, we're Ukbar, so what uh, could it potentially do for us, you know? <laughs> that's what we that's what we care about yeah yeah what can it do for you well it can provide a very secure layer and very performant layer through which you can buy layer one block space for low and sell layer two block space for high and get very good security guarantees and very good performance on uh many many transactions pumping through the Utbar network okay. i've heard buy low sell high is a good business model true or false <laughs> I'm, I'm told it's good, especially if you control the entire commodity layer of uh, the thing that you're selling high. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We'll pass this uh, on. We'll pass this on to our speakers. Yeah, to, to the higher ups, <laughs> make a call. You ever heard about this? Yeah. Buy yeah, low, yeah. sell high game. Uh, Logan, it it sounds to me as if um, if if Hapsol is uh, an urbit religious zealot, you are more of a a Knox zealot. That's right. The way that I've been framing it to uh, outsiders is that uh, Zorp is a knock company, not an Urbit company. And that's without any, uh, you know, hatred towards Urbit or anything along those lines. But rather, it's that I think that Zorp depends on not working well, which luckily is tiny, 12 instructions and doesn't really change that frequently, right? Not depend or uh, Zorp depends on knock, but Zorp doesn't depend on Urbit the personal server thesis that everyone wants a personal server to be successful. And one uh, kind of fun angle there and implication for the urban ecosystem particularly is that if Zorp is very successful at taking knock to market and enterprise, there's going to be a lot more both interest and capital flowing into urban writ large as a, another use case for knock. Well, I think this provides a good place to transition to something we were discussing before the show, which is what do you think is the the state of urbit now you know you've been around the ecosystem for a while and and worked for a number of different companies Tlon, terrell ukbar now you founded your own company that will clarify not an urbit company a knock company urbit urbit adjacent um sure. what what do you think about how the the ecosystem is evolving and where it's pointing because it seems there had been a ton of momentum in in the last year, uh, you know, ranging from new companies and applications to uh, you know <laughs> weird write ups in in New York based magazines and and these you know more users on on the network. But it can be sometimes hard to look at the whole the whole scope, especially for someone like me who's relatively new to the ecosystem and understand where it is in, it, in its life cycle, where we are, how close we are to getting non-zealots on the network. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there's a few framings that one can use, and it's easy to uh, interpret statements in, in the wrong one when someone intends it to be a particular one. So I'll kind of lay out a few of the framings, and then I'll say which one I'm going to occupy, um, and I'll do it really fast. So 
I think that there's different success cases and failure cases for Urbit, depending on who you are and what you want out of it. If you want Urbit to end up being a stable infrastructure that you can use every day for productive tasks, that's a type of person. If you want Urbit to be a commercial success that gets widespread adoption, that's another type of person. Let's just make that clean delineation. You can use Urbit every day for good tasks if it is just technically stable and say some of your friends use it. That's a different desire for Urbit and what it ends up being. Not a conflicting desire, but a lesser desire than someone that wants Urbit to be a commercial success that becomes a multi-billion dollar uh, market in technology generally. So I'm going to be approaching this from the frame of someone that wants Urbit to be a commercial success. I will say I think that Urbit, just to just as an aside to address it, I think Urbit is making rapid progress towards being that stable layer that someone can use and depend on for, for uh, various types of tasks with a small group of people on an ongoing basis. Okay, with that being said, okay, Urbit as a commercial viable space. I think that Urbit for consumers is very, very, frankly, at a very critical juncture right now, in which more or less the market is telling Urbit to put up or shut up. Now, that's not as a technology. The technology has been progressing at a great clip. The, the UF has been doing an amazing job, frankly, of pushing out updates with rapidity that have frankly been pretty stable as, as far as how large the updates are and how, how much work has gone into them over how long. But the market, what the market wants out of Urban at this point in terms of commercial success is for there to be market validation and traction towards the personal server thesis. That, in other words, if you can make the computation layer integrated with the data layer and integrated with the network layer and make it stable enough that people would desire their own personal server. And the market, frankly, is unconvinced that this is the case. And so Urbit is at a critical juncture now where Urbit needs to prove that thesis. And if it does, it'll get massive inflows of capital or Urbit will not prove that thesis. And if it does not, then, frankly, there will be outflows of capital. Now, what we're seeing is that everyone recognizes that this is a critical juncture. And further, that there's a lot of momentum around the technology and around the, the kind of community and a lot of new teams. There's the portal team. Um, they're doing a lot of fun stuff. I, I don't, I don't want to try to give some exhaustive list because someone will be sad that I didn't mention them. But there's a lot of interesting companies doing interesting things. And uh, what we're seeing is new teams being founded, new teams doing work, new products being launched new indie developers making things, launching them, maintaining them sometimes. And in a general sense, there is a lot of energy. However, what we're not seeing is we're not seeing yet a broad breakout of adoption. We're seeing upticks in user counts from various hosting solutions being deployed, whether it's Third Earth bought by Holium or whether it's Talon, um, I hear rumors Chorus 1 will do their own, but that's really, really good. It's, it's a development of the technology that takes it further toward hosting being a commodity. But again, we're at a stage where Urbit's been ongoing as a project for long enough, and Urbit has even been ongoing as a project that has been hosted and developed by commercial companies, Delaware C-Corps, to harken back, uh, that investors and the market generally more or less think that the personal server thesis needs to put up or shut up. And so 2023 and 2024 are the critical years where the personal server thesis is either proven, yes, people want personal servers, or the market retracts from the thesis and says, ah, people don't want those either forever or just for now, and this is too early. So this is, this is my uh, way of saying, now is the time. Let's let's see what's going to happen. And we do see a lot of developer energy. We see a lot of new products launching, and that's all really good. But we need to see that come together cohesively. 
in order for there to be some true testing of the market thesis because people don't like to uh, just watch an ivory tower being built with no people to occupy it. So what what needs to happen to test this thesis? What is what is remaining um, before Herbert is in a place to actually draw some conclusions about I don't know whether or not people even want the the personal server. Well, I mean, frankly, this is the this is the entrepreneur job at this point. This is this isn't a technical question anymore. Mm-hmm. And I I can float my own, you know my own opinions about this or that or whatever or and evaluate that thesis or that thesis or float my own or whatever. But frankly, I'm not in that arena right now. What about to put that question to you explicitly? Do consumers want personal servers? Like, in your vision, does this thesis have weight? Will the will the market bear it out if the right products are there, or do people just not care? At the end of the day, I don't know. I don't know. I think that there are enough hobbyists that want a personal server that if their personal server could host, say, like federated social networks say Mastodon style or Noster style, that there's certainly room for adoption of that. Whether people want to take, whether whether it's easy slash viable in the next year to, or two to get to a point where it is easy enough, simple enough, has a high enough value add that people are willing to either pay for it or at least go through the burden of learning how to deal with it um, in a freemium model. That, that there will be widespread adoption, we'll see. Frankly, I think that there are a few really interesting approaches that I only see being taken kind of tenuously right now that I wish were being tested. But I do see a lot of interesting work going on in terms of the UX that various uh, of these consumer companies are focusing on. Um, I think I'm simultaneously in a stage here where I want to uh, be careful with my wording and also because it's a a public medium and Mm -hmm. also where just so as not to either, you know, diss anybody and say, oh, they're not doing enough or they're not doing enough. But I also want to say, I think it's a really critical time. I do think some people are doing really cool stuff. Um, Frankly, just to kind of put something out there. I really wish that I saw a concrete attempt by a talented, seasoned technical team to build normal social media, (laughs) because that is clearly a product that people want, and it is a product that no one in Urbit has been willing to build for purely ideological reasons. So you mean mm-hmm. Twitter on Urbit, for instance? I want to see Twitter. I want to see YouTube. Yeah. I want to see SoundCloud. I want to see Instagram. Hell, I want to see TikTok. I want to see all of this shit. I want to see, you know, Tumblr on Urbit. And well, I think uh, that, frankly, there hasn't ever been a serious attempt to build any of this that has had enough resources. Well, you know, uh, TikTok was just banned in Montana. So now we got a, we got a whole market just waiting for Urbit TikTok. Ready to yeah, go. no, it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Um, <laughs> frankly, I've never been super bullish on Urbit as it or on uh, the Urbit Groups model being able to take off in the consumer space. Mm-hmm. It's um, a, it's it's a little um, cumbersome and and clunky as it as it currently set up certainly. Yeah. From my perspective, it seems like the best way to start is to say, hey, there's a global feed of what everyone's talking about. And then once you've got that, you want to build out, hey, there's a feed of what your pals are talking about. Mm-hmm. And then you can, as there's enough people coming on that you that it actually makes sense, you know, switch the default from the global feed to the pals feed. That seems to be like the the obvious thing to do that no one's doing. But I will say... Uh, the portal team seems to be making progress towards something like this. I I, uh, I wait with bated breath to see if if they'll uh, if they'll follow through. But uh, aside from that, frankly, I think that uh, as someone who's uh, not in the arena, as uh, mm-hmm. Roosevelt would say, uh, 
you know, I, I very strongly hesitate to uh, critique anyone too strongly. All right, Logan, that seems like a great place to wrap this conversation up. Thank you so much for, for joining us. This has been both, I don't know, inc- incredibly informative, but also I think really entertaining and, and interesting. So I'm, I know that we're really looking forward to seeing what happens with, with Zorp and everything you're building. So uh, thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thanks, y'all. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, great. All right. And to everyone listening, make sure to go uh, follow Zorp on Twitter, go check it out, go learn more, and we'll have details on all of that in the show notes. So thank you again to everyone for joining us on the Network Age. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. And if you made it to the end of this podcast and love it as much as we hope, we would really appreciate it if you went and left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, you'll get your review read right on the show, like this one from our friend, Crypto is Changing Our Society. I, I wonder if that's their birth name, right? The Crypto Reformation, fantastic podcast that gets you thinking about the massive changes coming our way. Some of the clearest thinking I've heard on how tech, especially crypto tech, is going to change society and how we can tap into it as individuals. The hosts are, of course, personally invested in crypto, so there's an element of seeking to create the change that they're describing. Most of the guests are either in crypto or are crypto adjacent, but it's definitely not a token shilling podcast. You hear that, IRS? Five stars or SEC or whoever is coming for our money. So if you like the show, make sure to go and leave us a review. And we will see you next time on The Network Age.